to you. Numbers chapter 14 this evening. Sunday night through the Bible. Genesis to Revelation as we're turning there. I know that uh, some of you aren't able to come on Sunday mornings here and you come in the evening. Uh, be aware that we announced the upcoming uh, Israel trip for about a year from now. And um, flyers and information related to that are available in a literature rack. Uh, we've made a Israel kind of trip display in one of the uh, display racks out in the fellowship hall. And uh, you can pick up more information related to that uh, there. Well, we pick things up in, uh, let's go uh, to verse 10 and uh, kind of head into 11. We headed through verse 10 of chapter 14. And all the congregation said to stone them, that is Joshua and Caleb with stones. And then as they're ready to kill these men who are trying to spur them on to faith and obedience to God's call upon their lives and call upon them uh, as a nation, they, uh, uh, as, as they're about to do that, the glory of the Lord appeared. The Lord is just like, okay, he's, he's had enough. He's given these people enough uh, room to express their wickedness and their unbelief. And uh, he's going to step in now and protect uh, Joshua and Caleb from their intent. He appeared before the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. So they're at Kadesh Barnea. God has been promising to them all the way since back to the time of Abraham that he had a land that was for them, a promised land, the land of Canaan that they would go in and take. And they will come right up to the border of it there at Kadesh Barnea. Uh, they came up with the idea, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16, somewhere in there, came up with the idea of sending in some spies to spy out the land, to make sure that it was exactly as God had promised that it would be so. God allowed that. Moses allowed that to happen. They came back. Ten of the spies came back and gave an evil report of the land. Yes, it's everything God said that it is, but that's a place, if we go in there, we're just going to get killed. They're going to wipe us out. They're going to wipe our wives out. They're going to wipe our children out. So they gave an evil report. And they looked at that whole conquering of the land solely in the context of their own resources. We can't do it. But of course, God doesn't call us to do things on the basis of, of our resources, but on the basis of his resources. Joshua and Caleb, they stand up, and as the people go into kind of mourning and weeping all night, and, and clearly this has taken a bad turn, they want to go in and, and head into the next plan that God has for their life. And they encourage the people on to faith. Come on, let's do it. God is with us, as he says there in Verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, then he'll bring us into the land. That's all that matters is what is God saying? What is he doing? That'll be the final say in the situation. They don't like it uh, and they don't like this report. And so they start to speak of stoning him and the Lord again steps up, stoning them and steps up and, and uh, puts a, uh, to put a stop to it. And then the Lord said, verse 11, to Moses, how long will these people reject me? He'd given them promises, I'm going to give you this land, I'm going to give you this land. One of the reasons they didn't want to go in and take the land was the, the people that are in there, I mean, there's a lot of them, and they're really strong, and they've got big cities with big walls and all this. When God spoke to Abraham and said, I'm going to take you into this promised land, he told them up front, there are people in there, there are Canaanites, and there are all these other ites that are in the land, and they're firmly entrenched, and you can't conquer them now because the fullness of the sin of the Amorites hasn't been fulfilled. And so he waited 400 years while they were in Egypt for the, the sin of the people to become so great that he could see no one is going to do anything redemptive with their life for the rest of their lives, and they need to go in and, and take, uh, take the land. And so he's given them the promises, and he looks at their rejection of going into the land, the rejection of his commands, as a rejection of him. How long will they not believe me? And so he, he views their rejection, this rebellion that's going on here, is basically the people rising up to call him a liar. They treat him with a contempt of a liar. He can't be trusted. His words can't be trusted. We go in there. He says we're going to take the land, but we'll all get killed in there. And he looks at that and he sees how they respond to the promises. Is that They're talking to me like I'm a common street liar on things. And he took it personally. 
Uh, and he, he, he watches us as we handle his promises and, and, and all. And so this was a, a great affront to him. And it was a, a, an especial affront to him in, in light of what he said next, with all the signs that I've performed among them. How can they call me a liar? How can they put me in that category after all of the history that they have with me? Ten great miracles to get them out of Egypt. Then the crossing of the Red Sea, the bringing in, you know, of fresh water there at Marah where the water was, was bitter and brackish and, and all these miracles that he'd done. He said it, it, their unbelief in him in light of the history that they had with him uh, was uh, kind of mind-boggling. It's important as we walk with the Lord and we gain a history with him of his faithfulness, his miracles, the things that he's done for us. When we face the next big thing that he's calling us to, we don't look at that like we don't have a history with God. And that's, our, that's, that's the common temptation. But to stop and look back and say, wow, you know, most of the time we've got something back in our past where he's already gotten us through something that's even bigger than what we've, we're going through now. If you could do it there, then you can do it here. And we just apply that history of God's faithfulness to the current uh, situation. So they're dismissing him, his, his uh, truthfulness, and, and dismissing his, his power and his wisdom here. So God says, I will strike them with a pestilence. I'm going to wipe them out with a disease, and I'm going to disinherit them. And disinherit them means I'm going to... Uh, Canaan, the promised land, was... Their inheritance, he said, I'm going to take that away from them. And I will make, as he speaks to Moses, I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than thee. Moses, I'll tell you, I'm going to wipe these people out, and then I'm going to fulfill the promises that I made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the Jewish people are going to come in and, and possess this promised land and be a nation there. I'm going to do it through uh, your uh, lineage and Moses said to the Lord, He intercedes now. Uh, some of us might look and say, "Well, that's what you got to do. That's what you got to do." You know? What can I say? <laughs> but uh, Moses doesn't do that. He's a little higher caliber uh, than some of us in the room. So Moses he begins to intercede for the people. And Moses said to the Lord, uh, and his main concern is for the glory of the Lord, the reputation of the Lord. He said to the Lord, then the Egyptians, if you do this, you wipe them out and you don't take them into the promised land. Then the Egyptians will hear about it. For by your might, you brought these people up from among the Egyptians. And then they'll tell the inhabitants of the land, all of these uh, people of Anak and the Canaanites and all, they'll, they'll tell all the inhabitants of the land, and uh, they have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. These people in the promised land, they've heard about you, uh, Lord, and, and, and word has gotten out from what you did and the destruction of Egypt to gain the redemption of these, these people. Now if you kill these people as one man, that's how easy it would be for God to wipe them out. Then the nations which have heard of your fame, this is the conclusion that they'll come to. They won't come to the conclusion, Lord, that these people were disobedient and you wiped them out in a righteous judgment. The surrounding nations will misinterpret it. And this is the conclusion that they'll come to. Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. This is how it's going to play out in Cairo and how it's going to play out in Canaan. Is that the God of the Jews was powerful enough to bring the people out of Egypt. But he was not powerful enough to take them into the land of promise. And, and that's what they did in the ancient world. They viewed um, what happened to the people of a God. Uh, they came to conclusions about a person's God based upon what happened to the people. And so they're going to look at what you do here with the people and they're going to figure, well, I could get them out of Egypt, but I couldn't get them in the promised land, so I wiped them out. Which wasn't unusual for ancient gods and uh, the false gods that the people, the people worship. So this is the kind of, of conclusion that they're, going to, uh, that they're going to come to. And so he said, in light of your reputation, and so people don't come to that wrong conclusion, now I pray 
Let the power of my Lord be great. Not asking you not to be powerful, Lord, just as you have spoken. And he quotes what the Lord revealed to him, to him back in Exodus, personally revealed to Moses the description of the Lord. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and, but he by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And he says, pardon, use your power, Lord. And he's asking, would you use your power, Lord, demonstrate your power in pardoning the greatness of the iniquity of your people. So that when word gets out in Cairo and in Canaan that this is the kind of God that you are, then that's going to bring glory to you. There's no God like that in the ancient world. So pardon the iniquity of these people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So he pleads for mercy here. And the Lord said, I have responded according to your word. Now don't think that, the, that uh, you know, Moses uh, talked God out of something that, you know, that God didn't want to kind of be talked out of here. You have to see th- this whole thing where God makes this, uh, his, uh, he's upset with the people and he promises, okay, I'm going to wipe them out and I'll make a nation of you, Moses. Remember that happened at the time they were worshiping the golden calf there with Aaron. And, uh, and so Moses came forward and he offered the same kind of a prayer to the Lord that he would show mercy upon the people. And you can be sure that if God wanted to wipe these people out, no prayer was going to change that. Moses is just praying in line with the heart of the Lord. You see the, heart, the, the Lord, he smiles through this prayer. Again, we think back when Moses was at the burning bush and God called him to be a deliverer of the people, Moses didn't want anything to do with it. He didn't care about these people, didn't care about bringing them out of bondage. He had tried to bring them out of bondage and been a leader to him 40 years earlier. When he struck an Egyptian that was beating on a Hebrew servant and they said, who are you to be the king over us? Are you going to strike us like you struck the Egyptian and all? And they just shunned him and put him off and he said, all right, I'm out of the deliverance business and and the redemption business. And he went on, uh, was going to just live out his days and die. And, but uh, here, in all of this time that God has been working in his life, he's been fashioning his own heart and Moses. And that's what you hear in this prayer. So the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but there is a consequence to this uh, uh, sin. Truly, and when you hear God say truly, that means it's going to happen. When you hear say, God say, as I live, he's swearing an oath based upon uh, his life. And since he has no beginning and no end, there's nothing about his his life. When he says, truly and as I live, this is going to come to pass. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test. Now, these ten times, they've been one thing after another since we got out of Egypt and testing me and have not heeded my voice. They certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. And so he says this group of people, they are uh, simply not going to go into the land. Now, the don't view this uh, 40 years of their wandering there in the wilderness as just pure punishment, that the Lord is just being punitive against them and, and he's just taking them to the woodshed and he's giving them a good, a good whipping. Uh, it is this... What, this Uh, kind of judgment that he brings out on them is a consequence of their actions, a consequence of their lack of godly or Christian character. And basically what God is saying here is that no generation that is unable to trust God enough to just simply obey his clear, unmistakable commands to go and enter the land would have the godly character that's required to conquer the land. So he gave them, he gave them a whole bunch of rope. They could either do something with it, or they could hang themselves with it. And they hung themselves with it. 
And so when they, they take and they pull back and say, we're not going to again, no way, not no, in all, God just looks and says, all right, we'll let you die off and, uh, because you don't, I could put you in there, but you won't get three miles into the land with your lack of character. So, so it, was, it, was, it wasn't just a, a punishment. It was the Lord looking and saying, they don't have what it takes uh, to do that. I gave them a chance to do that. They've exposed themselves to themselves, and they won't go into the land. But he said, my servant Caleb, this is one of the two spies that brought back a good report with Joshua, because he has a different spirit in him. You think, wow, all right, God, God's going to say, this guy's not going to die. Um, in, in, uh, in the wilderness. He says he's got a different spirit. And then he describes what a different spirit is. He has followed me fully. That's what makes a person different, even among God's people. A person who's not just a child of God, but someone who follows the promises of God and the commands of God fully. That makes a person distinctive, even among uh, God's people. Even yet today, I will bring uh, him into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites, they dwell in the valley, and so they're in the promised land. You're not going in there. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Back out uh, into the wilderness. They need to go now to wander for 40 more, uh, 40 uh, years. You stop and you go, you know, wow. Can God do that? And the answer is yes, He can. And He does it right here. And it's one of the great warnings in the Bible against deliberate disobedience to God's Word and unbelief toward His, His promises. The Amalekites and the, the, the Canaanites, they pose no danger to God's plan. No danger to God's plan. The only danger to God's plan what was God's people themselves. This generation represented the greatest danger to his plan with their unbelief and, and with their, their disobedience. So he said, we'll let them go out and die in the wilderness. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. He'd been talking to them about their complaining for a long, long time. And they didn't do it, and they, they didn't deal with it, and they didn't deal with it, and they didn't deal with it, and they just let that sin continue to fester in their life until it played a part in this very, very tragic uh, fall, so to speak, in their life. When God speaks to us about something, some area, brings conviction into our heart about an area of sin, even if nobody else, no other Christian cares about it, nobody else thinks it's a big deal, when He speaks to us about something, it's, it's, he, he doesn't waste His words. It means that something is a danger to us. And He knows that some kind of something bigger is coming in our future that it's going to cause us to not handle that something bigger in a, in a proper way, and it's going to feed into a failure there. So important to listen to the voice of, of God when He takes the time, I mean, to, to speak to us. How wonderful it is, is it to have a God who speaks to us, <laughs> you know. So when He does that, He's to be heeded. They never stop complaining. God said, you know, I listened to all that stuff. And the complaints that they made against me. Say to them, as I live, again an oath, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. All of them are, are going to die uh, out out in, in the wilderness. And um, so the, the, the whole number, and remember what they had said to God, they had said uh, in, their, in their complaining, they said, it would be better for us if we had died in Egypt. It would be better for us if we had died in the wilderness than to die in Canaan. And so God kind of looked at it and said, well, I'm not taking you back to Egypt to have you die. But if you want to die in the wilderness, I'm going to arrange that for you. Uh, so for this generation, you, you asked for this, you complained about it, you wanted this, so I'll give it to you. You're all going to die 20 years and above um, uh, out in, in the wilderness, except 
for Caleb the son of uh, Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in but your little ones whom you said would die in the land if we went in I'll bring them in and they shall know the land which you have despised and so Caleb and Joshua are accepted and uh, so 603,550 men of Israel above the age of 20, they would die over the period of the next 40 years out in that wilderness. And you, so you figure uh, at least maybe 1, 1.2 million people, when you figure uh, wives and, and these, these kind of, uh, of things, they would, they would die over that next 30 seven and a half years, 38 and a half years, so about 85 funerals a day, that'll keep you busy, about seven dying every single uh, waking hour. So it just becomes a death march at this point to wait for the group uh, to die off. It is interesting here in verses 30 and 31 that God only speaks of Caleb and Joshua going into the land. He makes no mention of Moses going in. And that would be curious because uh, Miriam is going to die in the wilderness, so is Aaron going to die in the wilderness. They're not going to outlive that period of time and the 40 years and get in. But why wouldn't Moses? He didn't do any, any kind of sin in this situation. But God, in his kind of foreknowledge, he knows that Moses is going to strike the rock a second time, as we'll see in a few chapters, and he will disqualify himself from entering into the, to the land. And so out of this whole group above the age of 20, only Joshua and Caleb would go in. And as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Your carcasses. Your carcass. Carcass. Kind of a western. I like that, that whole thing. You just leave those carcasses out there. Yeah. And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and they're going to bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. And so here is a, a classic case of the children bearing the sins of the fathers. They're going to lose forty years out of their life. They're going to go into the promised land. They're going to lose forty years of their life to an unnecessary um, uh, wandering. And according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I've known yours, now you'll know mine. And I, the Lord, have spoken this, I will surely do so to all this evil gener uh, congregation who are gathered together against me. That's how he took this. Uh, and in this wilderness they shall be consumed and there they shall uh, die and so this will be the, uh, the end of them and then uh, now the Lord spoke to Mo uh, the, the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land those very men who brought the evil report the ten spies that brought that evil report uh, about the land they died by a plague before the Lord the Lord just uh, took them out at this particular point in time. He did not want their influence as a leader uh, to continue to be an influence among his people for unbelief and for willful disobedience against the commands of the Lord. Being a leader uh, in the Old Testament and, the Old, and in the New Testament is more than standing at the head of parades and doing big public things and and uh, uh, stuff like that. Being a leader, uh, a person has to actually lead God's people into a life of obedience. They need to model it and they need to uh, spur people on to that and exhort them toward that, encourage them toward that. And these guys uh, didn't do that, so he just removes their influence from uh, among the people. It's very, very important, I think, here at this point to understand that even the people who died, that, say 1.2 million people who died of kind of natural causes, except some of them are going to rebel again and God's going to have to cut some of them down in some different ways, but most of them are going to die of natural causes. But don't look at them and say, 
well, all right, they lost their salvation, or they lost their uh, relationship uh, with, with God, or they're eternally lost as a result of this failure uh, in their life, or they couldn't repent, we made a terrible mistake here, and God, I failed here, and, and what is the most pivotal kind of test in my life and all, but I do love you, and I do want to spend the rest of my life walking as close to you as I can. None of those doors close to these people. So they were able to repent and turn back to God individually and, uh, and walk with Him. They were still His children and uh, their rebellion and their disobedience, they moved themselves out of God's best plan for their life, but they were still His, his children and uh, He was, uh, remained committed to them. And so, again, the, what the Promised Land represents spiritually as um, experiencing all of the fullness of the promises that God has given us in the New Testament and what this whole chapter teaches us. It's possible to escape Egypt and to miss Canaan and to spend our whole Christian life not quite in the world like we were before, but not living in obedience and faith to the promises of the Word of God. And it's a miserable, miserable place to be. It's, a, it's a, the classic kind of statement that's made of it is it's the kind of person or the kind of Christian who has too much of the world uh, to be to fit in with God or to fit in with the church but too much of God to fit in the world so they're stuck in between these two uh, you know great divisions of, of mankind and it's a miserable miserable place to be it's a wilderness and so that's where they're uh, they're, uh, that's the choice that they've made. That's what a lack of obedience to God's word and faith lands us in, uh, even as, as Christians. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb uh, remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. And then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. Oh no, what have we done? And they rose early in the morning, and they went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are, and we'll go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And so now they regret the consequences of, of their sin and all. Now they get up early in the morning, we'll go in, we'll take the land, come on. And, and, uh, uh, and when you, you look at this, you, you don't look at it and say, well, they had a change of character. They become spiritually mature overnight. This is just a mood swing. This is just a mood swing, as we're going to see. They're going to be nothing but trouble for a very long time. So, let us do it. It sounds good. We want to go up and we're going to take the land and we've sinned. Now let's do it. Moses said, why do you transgress the command of the Lord? God said, you can't go up and take it. You're going to die in the wilderness. You cannot fix the consequences of one act of disobedience by committing another act of disobedience. That only makes things worse, as if you could hardly think they could be worse. But they can't get worse. And that's what they're trying uh, to do here. This will not succeed. Do not go up. This is known as clarity. Lest you be defeated by your enemies. For the Lord is not among you. God isn't in this, what you're doing. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you. And you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed... And so they think they're taking a step of faith. No, no, we got the faith now, and, and we're gonna, we can do it, and, and, uh, and it sounds very, very spiritual, but it's not faith. It's presumption. There's a big difference between faith and presumption. Faith is this. Faith is never guessing the will of God. Faith is knowing what the will of God is, and then doing it, even though it's going to mean hardship, and difficulty to obey him. That's where faith comes in. But presumption is where someone just looks and says, I'm going to wildly throw myself into danger contrary to the promises of God, and I'm going to force God to rescue me from my crazy presumption. And what we're going to see here in a moment is the Lord doesn't feel any obligation necessarily uh, to uh, spare us of the consequences of that. So they presumed it sounds spiritual, it sounds like great faith, it sounds like, but it's just disobedience. 
So they presume to go up on the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain, they came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Horma and Horma means destruction. It was they were severely defeated there, and uh, and so the site was named uh, after that defeat. And so they're they're driven back. And the Lord spoke to Moses here in uh, uh, chapter 15. And what the Lord is going to do in this chapter 15 is He's going to repeat to them instructions that He has given to them already that we've looked at with. In, in some detail uh, in, in the past, but he's going to give them repeat instructions concerning different offerings, uh, uh, again, that we looked at in, in Leviticus, and there's a reason why he's going to repeat all these things to them, as we'll see in a moment. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land, you are going to inhabit which I am going to give to you. Now you think about what that would do to their hearts. And basically the reason that God repeats all of these offerings in chapter 15 to them is just to say, to encourage them, listen, you're going to the promised land. A, a, a disaster has happened here just now, but it doesn't mean that I'm through with you as my people. You're going to go into that land, and when you go into that land, you're going to offer sacrifices on the very land I promised to you, and I want you to do it the right way. Any of you ever failed? Of course not. You go here at the church. But I think, I think most of us know, and sometimes you don't even have to fail in like some gigantic way that would take people's breath away if they knew. Uh, sometimes our consciences can be have a very, very... A tender conscience and a small thing can cause us to feel, I failed greatly in that, that place. And how wonderful it is when the Lord comes in so quickly after a failure and we're dealing with the consequences of it, but he begins to speak to us of the future. He begins to speak to us of the good things that he's going to yet do for us, that our failure hasn't disqualified us uh, from. And so that, having been one who is, has heard that, uh, voice from God and the encouragement, I can really feel what's happening on the page here. It means a lot for God. As God would speak to the children of Israel through Jeremiah at a time of terrible failure in their history, talk to them about having a future and a hope for them. Think about Peter. Remember when Peter failed? I will never deny you. If they kill me, I'll never deny you. He denies knowing Jesus three times. The cock crows. He looks Jesus in the eye in and, and what is a very battered condition uh, by that time. And, uh, and he goes off and he weeps uh, bitterly, bitter tears, the Bible says. And following Jesus' resurrection, the Bible tells us that the angel spoke to the women who came to the tomb and said, Listen, go tell the disciples and Peter that he's risen. And Jesus then met with Peter personally and individually uh, before he then met with Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee when he restored him into ministry. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And here's Peter, failed so greatly, and yet the Lord came in right behind it and said, listen, we'll, we'll, to, to me, as long as 1 John 1, 9 is in the Bible, and that is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Romans 8.38, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and they're called according to his purposes. As long as those two verses are in the New Testament, there's hope for us after failure. And God will not allow the failure to be the final say in, in our lives. So this infuses tremendous hope. Uh, into their hearts. So you're going to go in there, that land, I am giving it to you. It's on layaway. We don't like that, uh, but it's coming your way. And you shall make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow as a freewill offering or in your appointed feast to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd or the flock. 
And then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with uh, one-fourth of an oil, a hin of oil, and one-fourth a hin of wine as a drink offering. You shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice for each lamb. It's interesting as he starts to lay out, and I'm basically going to read through this with you, as he, because, again, we've looked at all of this, but when he lays out the offerings to these people about the, that they're going to do in the land, he begins with the burnt offering, and then he moves on to the thanksgiving offering. The burnt offering is an offering of consecration. God, I give you my life uh, completely, 100%. You use it however you want. And, and so having that kind of a commitment to God, having a thankful heart toward God, would cut what out at the legs? Complaining. Complaining. And, and so he addresses those offerings that would keep them uh, clear of becoming a complaining people again. Or for a ram, you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hin of oil. And as a drink offering, you shall offer one-third of a hin of wine as a sweet aroma to the Lord. And when you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or as a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or a peace offering to the Lord, then shall be offered with the young bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hin of oil. Now we look at this and say, all right, okay, come on, get on. Well, what? Is, what? Does, so it doesn't mean a lot to us. If every detail would mean something to them. You got it. I'll tell you, when we get in there, we, you give us a second chance, we will keep this right down to... Uh, a gnat's wing. I mean, th so this was putting hope inside of their heart. And you shall uh, bring as the drink offering half a hen of wine as an offering made by fire a sweet aroma to the Lord. And thus it shall be done for each young bull, for each ram, for each lamb or young goat, according to the number that you prepare, so you shall do with everyone according to their number. All who are native-born shall do these things in this manner in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger shall dwell with you, a stranger is a Gentile, a non-Jew is who he's talking about here, or whoever is among you throughout your generation. So here he express, God expresses his heart for not only the Jews to have a relationship with him and to enter into all of obedience in these things, but also a heart for the Gentiles. That's one of the things that the Jewish religious leaders lost sight of. They began to read the Bible and they uh, stopped looking at the verses that express God's love for the Gentiles. And so they began to look at themselves as this exclusive group of people, the Jews, and everyone else was a step or two down uh, below them. And they isolated themselves and insulated themselves even within the pride of their own hearts from the Gentiles and they lost sight of God's great love for the whole world and that he wanted to bless the whole world through the descendants of, of Abraham. And so here's another example. God loves the Jews. I mean, there's no mistake in that as we read the Bible. But he loves the Gentiles too and there was a place for them to have a relationship with him also uh, in the Old Testament. And so if that stranger who dwells with you or whoever is among you throughout your generations and would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. One ordinance shall be for all the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. And again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I, which I bring you. Thank you, Lord. Another reminder of this. It's going to happen. And then they, oh, verse 19, then. Oh, it's past tense. We're going to be there. You know, it's going to, it will be. When you eat of the bread of the land, you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. You shall offer up a cake 
of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering, as a heave offering of the threshing floor, so you, so you shall offer it up. Of the first of your ground meal, you shall give it to the Lord, a heave offering throughout your generations. And it was called a heave offering because they would take, as they began any of their harvest, they would take uh, wheat or something of, of the harvest, and they would raise it up before the Lord, or they would wave it before the Lord, and, uh, and, that, and so it, it gained that name of a wave offering or uh, a heave offering. And so basically what God is saying to them is there's going to be a day. Not only are you going to come back into the land, are you going to, not going to come back, you're going to come into the land and you're going to offer sacrifices there. But that land is going to prove itself to be a land flowing with milk and honey. You are going to grow crops there. And you are going to have great crops. And don't forget, when I bless you with great crops in that land, don't forget to thank me uh, for it. Now, this is great. God's speaking of their future in this way. And uh, 40 years was going to be a while to wait for all that happen. He's infusing beautiful hope into their hearts. And then he deals with a sin, if you sin unintentionally. He said, uh, the offering for that. If you sin unintentionally, so uh, this tells us that people can sin unintentionally. Sometimes I think in the culture, our culture here in the United States, we think sin is only, I mean most people think it's only if someone does some extraordinary heinous thing. I mean they're somebody that's more evil and more wicked than the evil and wicked norm. And so that becomes the standard, kind of where people are in, in, in the culture. And so, or they look and say, well, all right, I'll be a little stricter in, in my definition of sin. Sin would be something that I know is wrong, and I do, it, I do it intentionally, even though I know that it's wrong. Now, that's sin. But sin is also when I unintentionally uh, miss the standard of God's word. So I'm going along just trying to do the best I can in life and I turn around and I look back two hours back and I go, oh, did I do that? Oh, Lord, I didn't mean to. I didn't like start the day at 6 a.m., you know, and praying to you and, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning I'm going to do this terrible thing or, or at least fall short of your word or something. It was completely unintentional, but it's still sin. It's still to miss the mark, which is a definition of sin in the Bible. And, and, and so here, unintentional sin also had to be covered. Jesus died on the cross for deliberate sin. He died for unintentional sin. That's why when the Bible comes and says about every single person that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, there's a certain group of people who look and say, you're calling me a sinner? I went to Girl Scouts, and then I went to the Brownies, and then I graduated uh, something, something, this, and I was then and here, and then I, I volunteered at the hospitals my whole life, and here I am, 83. I've never done anything I can even think of. On this, but everyone, no matter how hard they try, we will unintentionally uh, not be perfect. And so it disqualifies us for heaven. There need to be a sacrifice for it. So if you sin unintentionally and don't observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it shall be if it is unintentionally committed without the knowledge of the congregation uh, that the whole congregation shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering, according to the ordinance, and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. And so the priest shall make atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel. It shall be forgiven them, for it was unintentional. So when the congregation of Israel, someone does something unintentional, and it represented the whole congregation, this was the sacrifice that was required. And they shall bring their offering, an offering made by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their unintended sin. It shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells among them because all the people did it 
unintentionally. If a person, and here's now personal unintentional sin, if a person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. And so the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally, when he sins unintentionally, before the Lord to make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. And you shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native born among the children of Israel, Jews, and for the stranger, Gentiles who dwell among them. Same thing was required, again, in the same way with Jesus. Uh, uh, Both Jew and Gentile required uh, salvation and required a savior from their sin, and Jesus is that savior. But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord. So this is just out and out uh, rebellion. When it talks about presumptuously, there it means literally with a high hand. It's the kind of an attitude, I don't care what God says. We're talking about a child of God. I don't care what God says. I don't care what his word says. This is what I want to do and I'm going to do it. So this isn't um, uh, some kind of a misguided thing that's, uh, it was misguided, but uh, some kind of an accidental thing that's happening here. This is deliberate, open rebellion against the word of God. So that person brings a reproach on the Lord and he shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. And so God had very little tolerance for uh, deliberate sin. But as we look back in the, the book of Leviticus and, and maybe even earlier in Numbers, there, were sacri- there was a sacrifice that did cover intentional sin. So I don't want you to think, uh, and certainly Jesus' uh, death upon the cross and his sacrifice covers intentional sin. I wouldn't want any of us to think, boy, most of my sins are unintentional, but you know, I've, I've done some high-handed sinning in my life. And uh, does that mean there's no sacrifice for me? There is a sacrifice for you, and it's the sacrifice uh, of Jesus. And we need to learn, okay, what do we do wrong there? Not do it again so that we don't make that kind of high-handed sin uh, pattern uh, in our life and, and hurt the heart of the Lord in doing it. Now, the children of Israel, we get an example now of this uh, case of intentional sin. Now, the children of Israel were in the wilderness, and they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. That's verboten. You can't gather sticks on the Sabbath day. That was clearly what the Word of God taught. So here's a guy. Don't think he just like got up on the wrong side of the bed. Oh, my, what day is it? I think it's Tuesday. I'll go out and collect some sticks. You know. And he's going out and he's picking up sticks and all. And you've got this little guy who doesn't quite have it all together. And now he's going to get... Uh, you know, uh, in, in trouble over it. This is a guy who goes out and say, says, Sabbath, shmabbath, I don't care about Sabbath. I need sticks, I'm going to go get sticks. I don't care what God's Word says. I don't care what, what I model before God's people, this rebellion or anything. I'm going to do what I want. I'm not taking any of this uh, seriously. So this is the attitude that he's out there with. And those who found him gathering sticks, you've got eyewitnesses, they see him doing this. Whoa, everybody knows, he knows, everybody knows this is wrong. So they brought him to Moses and Aaron, the eyewitnesses did, and to all the congregation. And what they did then was they put him under guard, they just kind of held him, because it had not been explained what should be done to him. So they don't know. God, what do we do with it? I mean, we haven't really run into anybody who's defied the Sabbath and defied your word this openly like this. And so what are we supposed to do here uh, with this? And so they, they sought the Lord to know the mind of the Lord related to it. And then the Lord said to Moses, The man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And so a death sentence was the Lord's decree upon this. And so, as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. Now, what's interesting to me is that you might look at this and say, well, couldn't we get, like, put together 200 leaders of the Jews who would, like, do the stoning? Why would he involve the whole congregation uh, in this whole stoning of, of this 
this one man? I think there's a couple reasons. Uh, number one, his sin and his rebellion against God's word was a sin against them all. Sometimes people talk about a victimless crime today, don't they? They'll say they want to you know, legalize drugs because it's a victimless crime. The only person that's victimized by it is the person who takes the drugs. Um, and then all of the people that have their car stolen and their houses broken into to support the habit. And then all the prisons that are full because of all the people that break into the car. Well, okay, you see where it goes. The people, or they say, well, well, prostitution is a victimless crime. Both people that are involved in it, it really doesn't have any, any kind of consequences. So they look at this idea of, of victimless crime. God doesn't buy that. Because it, this is his universe. And he doesn't want crime or he doesn't want sin introduced into it. He knows it has great reproduction, uh, uh, repercussions in all directions. Talking about prostitution, I guess. So... Um, <laughs> But you, you, get this, you get this whole thing like on the prostitution side of things, for instance, where you look and say, yeah, these two people are involved in this. But you make sin more accessible and the bondage to sexual immorality to the average person than it would otherwise be. And uh, I've spoken about how, even in my own life, how uh, things have changed in the last, um, how old am I now, 40 years United States of America, where you ha- we, we lived, grew up in Napa, California, and if you wanted to go see something that was wrong or something, you had to go to the big city, you had to go to San Francisco to do that. And so people had to put money together and all this kind of stuff, and it was a good separation from sin. It was hard to get access to certain kinds of sin, and things were better in the United States because of, of that. So... There is no victimless uh, sin. God knows there are the victims that are immediately involved, but then there are repercussions in in all directions. When this guy comes in and he says, I'm going to do whatever I want, that's a sin against these people. It's a sin against their children. Because now their children look and they are seeing something they would not otherwise be seeing. And that is a man living in open defiance of God's word. They had never seen that before. I mean, it's a complaining thing like that, but I mean, in terms of this, this kind of a thing. If this guy gets to just do his thing, then what happens? You as parents, you know, the kids grow up and they look and say, yeah, there's mom and dad's telling us one thing over here and, and all, but you got people over here, they're picking up st- sticks on the Sabbath day, they, they, it doesn't seem like it's hurting them or anything and all, so they go in, then and do that, and it just takes a generation or so before the influence of this willful disobedience now permeates the whole congregation. It happens in churches too. And once in a while, we don't have to do it very often, thankfully, in terms of church discipline, where we've got to go to someone and say, listen, now we understand that this is the circumstance that you're in the middle of here right now, and here's what the Word of God says related to that, and this is what you really need to do here, because it's not just about you, you're representing Christ, and, and your sin or your, your life now affects an entire congregation. You've got a lot of people watching you now on what you're going to do, whether you're going to do what's right here or not. Here's what right is according to the word and if they dig in and they say I don't care what his word says I'm going to do what I want in this situation and that's just too bad then we're forced to say well you might do that but you won't do that here because as Paul spoke to the church at at, uh, Corinth when they had a a case of sexual immorality going on right in within the church that the leaders weren't dealing with he said don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump a little sin will permeate the whole church because then this person looks over here and says well if it's okay for him to leave leave his wife or her to leave her husband or for him to go to church and yet be ripping people off in business during the week then it must be okay for me to do that and then pretty soon you turn around and you got a church that is no longer characterized by holiness and has completely dropped off the edge of the earth in terms of making any influence for God in the culture. So what they're doing here is this man is sinning against everyone in that camp. Second reason he has them 
involved, I think, in the stoning is because to drive home the point that they were as individuals responsible for the holiness of the camp, the holiness of God's people. That wasn't just Moses' job. That wasn't just Aaron's job. That was their responsibility too. You couldn't just pass that off on to, to somebody else. And in the same way, we have individual responsibilities as Christians where somebody's doing something that's just a violation of the Word of God. It's a clear violation. And we look at it and say, oh boy, I'll you know, wait until the pastors hear about it and then, you know, then they can deal with it. I don't want to get in the middle of it. Well, that might take three years. That might take six months in a church this size before we hear about something. And by then there's about ten victims related to the thing. We all have a responsibility for maintaining and encouraging holiness within a church and within the body of Christ. And those final three words of verse 36, and he died. And, and the idea is with his death was the death of his leaven of of rebellion that he was introducing into the camp. His influence died also. And again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments, their robes, throughout their generations, and put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And so he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make, when you... Wear your robes and your garments on each of the four corners. Put one of these tassels and, and make it of, of blue thread. Now blue is the color uh, of the sky, so it was to remind them of heaven. It was, whenever, it was just kind of, God's going to say it in a moment, whenever they would look down and they're walking, and you're walking with a robe, man, those tassels are moving. They're active, aren't they? So you've got that reminder going on. And uh, uh, that's, that's, that's happening, and it's just a reminder of, wow, okay, I am living in this world, but I want to live in this world in a way that pleases heaven, and because that's the government that I'm a part of. So it was to remind them of that, even in, in their walking. Uh, so this the Lord gave to them. Before I go any further on that, it's interesting that Jesus um, dealt with the Pharisees on this issue. So when you read it in the Gospels, where Jesus confronts the Pharisees over the fact that they were supersizing their tassels. So, you want to see a tassel? You know, you got those little tassels over there that you get, you know, it... it uh, a smudges shop over here. I'll show you a tassel. And they got these big tassels just trying to show off their spirituality. And he, and he rebukes them uh, for it. Just a way to kind of make themselves different from, from everyone else. It wasn't about impressing other people. It was about reminding them of the fact that they're on this earth, but they're on this earth to please heaven. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it, remember all the commandments uh, of the Lord and do them. And that's how to please heaven with obedience to God's word. And that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. So it was, a, it was to be a help in time of temptation. I'm being tempted to disobey God's word. I'd see the tassels. That's right. I'm not a citizen of this earth. I'm a citizen of heaven, even as the Bible teaches us as Christians. And so I'm going to turn away from that temptation. Needed reminders. And that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy uh, for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. In other words, when you obey me in, my, in obeying these commandments, I don't want you to obey me because, oh boy, this is a miserable life and I've got to obey God because he told me that I have to obey him. God said, I want you to obey me in response to the fact that I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of that crummy life there, the bondage and all of the the terribleness of it, and then in response to how good I've been to you, would you obey my commandments on this? And so that's the same thing with Christianity. It is a response. We, we love him because he first loved us. It isn't us trying to earn his love or anything like that. We obey him because he loves us and he's been so good to us. That's the highest motivation for uh, obedience. 
And I think that's the thing we're talking this morning about uh, legalism and all of that. I hope that sermon didn't disqualify anyone from running for president sometime in the future. But uh, we talked a little bit about legalism there and talking about where it is in the culture and this, this kind of thing. And what the legalist doesn't understand is, uh, is the hardest thing in the world to sin against is to sin against love. Where a person really says, God has been so good to me. He has saved me. You don't have to put me under a bunch of laws to get me to obey his word. I want to obey his his word. And a legalist feels like they've got to do the Holy Spirit's job for him among the body of Christ. And, uh, and so uh, this was to be a, uh, a response. And so this whole uh, re- remembering of, of the commandments and, and to, to be holy, to do it as a response to the Lord. I, I, I am not thinking about moving on, so you can relax about that. Just looking at these last couple of verses here. Ah, here it is. So a person says, all right, what do I do? Do I put a, a tassel on my rearview mirror in my car? Or uh, do, do I put a tassel on my clothes here? Is it, this seems like a good thing, a good thing to, uh, to uh, physical way of being reminded. We have the greatest reminder in existence in the person of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And he's the one where you don't have to even worry. I mean, you can be walking around at home without a robe on or something, just the inner robe that they would wear and no tassels on it. And and you can be in any condition, any place in the world, and the Holy Spirit knows how to speak to us at times of temptation or at any time. And just to say, remember, you're you're here, but this isn't your home. Uh, You're here, but this isn't what you're living for. You're living and supposed to live under the influence of heaven. And the Holy Spirit is able to do. Praise the Lord for these tassels. God did something that was important. I'm not minimizing that. But in the new covenant, because of Jesus Christ, we have something that is infinitely greater. The person of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If the worship team comes forward, that would be great. I'd like to just to spend 